Thanks, Bobby. Um, that was fast. Uh, good, uh, good evening or good afternoon, such as it may be, wherever your time zone is. Uh, I'm in Connecticut, so it's uh, just after 5 p.m. here. Um, my name is Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. We could start there. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I realized on doing presentations on this book was that uh, a lot of people who have actually read the book uh, couldn't figure out if I was in the program or not. You know, I, because I, I kept all of that personal stuff out of the uh, out of the book completely. So um, I need to tell you possibly that um, clarify sake that I am an, uh, in fact an alcoholic. I've been sober and out, active in Alcoholics Anonymous since December 7th, 1981. Uh, my home group is the Stratford Men's Group. And I attend I've been attending at least four meetings a week for the last 39 years of my life. Um, I had a my best friend and sponsor for 35 years. He died coming up on four years ago. Uh, I replaced him with two guys. I'm not one of those people who think that just because I have a lot of time, I don't need a second opinion with regularity. So I have two sponsors, uh, one of which I talk to every single day. And um, they really do keep me on track. They really do keep me on track. Um, these days I'm sponsoring about eight guys, but I've been sponsoring those eight guys, most of them for over 20 years. Some of them, a couple of them for over 30 years. So um, I haven't really worked with a real newcomer in a long time. Um, and to the free thinker aspect of this meeting, I should probably also tell you that despite the fact that I spent two years in the seminary, I was a non-believer by the time I was 23 years old. And I've been that way ever since. And I'm 77 these days, just to be clear on that. So. Um, I live in a world that has no supernatural powers whatsoever. We got no no angels, no devils, no gods or goddesses, no ghosts or goblins um, in my world. Uh, that is not to say that I don't live in a world that's just completely immersed in mystery. It seems to me that every time I blink and look someplace, I see another mystery. I just don't bring in any supernatural elements to explain those things. And I haven't done that for a very long time. And it's worked really well for me. Um, I do believe uh, that, that there's two basic premises in Alcoholics Anonymous. The first one is that if you're a real alcoholic, you have no defense against the first drink. And the second one is that oh, if in fact you can get yourself a spiritual awakening, um, it's probably gonna be able to stand between you and that first drink and you won't drink again. And I, in, in a nutshell, that's my belief about what Alcoholics Anonymous' program is all about. So I've, uh, I have actively pursued enlarging my spiritual life for the last 20 years, let's say, of, of my sobriety. And, uh, and that's been an interesting journey. I have a very, very, very broad definition of spirituality. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I, 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 uh, I've been getting on my knees in the morning since I was six years sober. And in the evening since I, about four years ago, I've been meditating twice a day for 13 years and uh, and at the moment I'm I'm, uh, I'm 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 trying to work the third step more than anything else and I've boiled the third step down to one word welcome when uh, bad stuff happens or when annoying stuff happens or when crazy stuff happens or when painful stuff happens in my life I say welcome out loud welcome I just want to embrace whatever's going on and that's how I remind myself I don't always believe it when I say it but I still say it anyhow so that's who I am. Um, 
Bobby invited me here to talk about my book. I, I wrote a book called Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA. It's a very big book. It's actually bigger than the original big book. And when it came out, we put them side by side. My lady, Sarah, my wife said to me, you know, we're just going to call it the bigger book from now on, because that's what it is. It's bigger than the big book. Um, the book basically covers a very short time period of Alcoholics Anonymous history. In October of 1937, Bill Wilson went to, with, with, some, with some New York people, went to Akron, uh, where Dr. Bob was in Ohio. And, uh, and, and that was the first time they talked about, we need to write a book. Hey, we should write a book. That was one of the proposals that Wilson brought to Akron, Ohio in the middle of October, 1937. The other two were he needed, he wanted a string of hospitals across the country and he wanted paid missionaries, all of which was gonna cost a lot of money, which is why they were chasing money for the next 18 months, actually longer than 18 months. Um, but so the book covers October, 1937. The first time they said, hey, we should write a book until 18 months later, almost to the day, uh, April 10th, 1939, the book was actually published. and. Um, and I got started on this project in, in kind of a weird way. Um, I'm a, I'm, I've been a, a rare book collector for, good Lord, um, 16, about 38 years. And, um, and after collecting books for um, 10 or 12 years, I started selling books. And when I retired from the, the big job, the big corporate job, I started selling books more um, aggressively. Uh, for cash flow purposes. So uh, I, I'm a rare book dealer and I specialize in first edition books, philosophy books. If you want a first edition by Spinoza or Immanuel Kant or John Locke or Ludwig Wittgenstein, I'm your guy. I, 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 I've got that. Um, I'm the Nietzsche guy also. I wrote a, I wrote a book in, and it was published in 95 on Nietzsche's publication history, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And that book was published by the University of Chicago Press, which is which is a big deal for a guy who's running a blueprint business. I mean, I wasn't a college professor or anything like that at all. I was running a family printing business. And, uh, and that book took me five years of research and writing to, uh, to do. This particular book, the AA book, uh, I started researching in September of 2007. I started writing in July of 2010 after three years of research. And I finished the first draft exactly to the day seven years later. In 2017, we polished that book. My wife and I, the lady Sarah, and five of my friends, uh, four of whom were a amateur historians for the next year. And then the book was published in November of 19, uh, 2019. And it's been really successful. It's gone through, it's been only out there for what? Uh, 20 months or something like that. And, uh, We've already gone through three printings of the hardback and they just released the paperback uh, a couple of months ago. So I'm really happy about that. The book's getting uh, attention. Um, I got into this because I bought a rare book. Now, I don't, I don't know how much a history you people know, but, but the famous New York atheist was a guy named Jim Burwell. Jimmy Burwell, came into AA in January of 1938. So this is before the book was, was um, even begun to be written at that point. 
Bill didn't start writing the book until May 20th, 1938. <clears throat> but uh, so Jimmy comes in and, and he's, uh, he's just a rabid atheist. And, uh, and he's the guy who's standing up. Now, you got <laughs> you to gotta know that most people don't know this. So I, I, I presume that people know a whole bunch of stuff that I've learned over the years, and they don't. That how different the meetings were in New York City and in Akron. Uh, the, the Akron meetings were, were deeply embedded with the Oxford group, a first century Christian movement that was very, very popular in, the, in this country in the first 20 or 30 years of uh, the last century. And, uh, and so if you went to a meeting in Akron, the, the meeting in Akron was on Wednesday night uh, at, at a guy named T. Henry Williams' house. Uh, half the people in that meeting weren't even alcoholics. They were, they were Oxford group people. So, so the, the meetings in, 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 in Ohio were really very, very deeply religious and, uh, and tied in with uh, uh, lots of praying, half hours of what they call quiet time, meditation, and, um, and, and, and readings from the New Testament with regularity. Um, and to go to the meeting at T. Henry Millett Williams' house in 1938 and 1936 and 1937, 1939, you had to, they, somebody would bring a newcomer to T. Henry Williams' house on Wednesday night, but they would take him upstairs and he would have to, if he didn't already do this at the hospital with his sponsor, they didn't call him sponsors in those days, but that's basically what it was. If he didn't already do it at the hospital, he would have to come to T. Henry Williams' house, go upstairs and get on his knees with his sponsor and a couple of other guys and surrender to God before they would even let him come downstairs and go to the meeting. Now that's really, really well documented. And I, I was a little shocked when I realized I'm reading all these documents from the 1930s that are really, really clear about that. And I, I, was, I was pretty flabbergasted with that. On the other hand, Jimmy Burwell comes into New York City uh, in uh, January of 1938. And he's the guy who's standing up in meetings and saying, screw all this God stuff. We don't, we don't need any God stuff here. All we got to do is treat each other better and hang together and don't drink and better, you know, and, and Jimmy was like that. So he was, he was a rabid atheist, and, and, and Jimmy claims in, 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 in his talks and in, a, in some of his written stuff that, that people in AA, uh, what, would, what would have been the old timers, 1930, I mean, hell, Bill was uh, three years sober. He was the most sober guy in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1938. Um, people would get together, and they would, they, would, they would have little prayer meetings, and they would pray that Jimmy would get drunk so they could prove the fact that you couldn't stay sober unless you believed in God. And uh, so Burwell goes out, he, he gets sober initially in January of 38, June of 38, he goes out, he has a big slip. He has a big catastrophic slip. And uh, he stays out for, I don't know, about a week, somewhere between five and eight days. And, and he comes back in, in June of 1938 and he gets sober and he, and he stays sober. He stayed sober until he died in uh, uh, 79, I think he died in 1979. So Jimmy was, uh, Jimmy was a, a radical, and he never really caved on his, uh, his uh, lack of belief. Jim was the guy who invented, you know, group of drunks, G-O-D. That was, that was Jim's deal. He was a group of drunks guy. So in 2001, there was an auction in California, in San Francisco. And in that auction, there was a bunch of AA material and it had all been owned by Jim Burwell. And uh, so I get, a, I, get a, I get an auction catalog and 
like August and I'm, I'm sitting on my back porch in the sunshine and I'm looking at this catalog I open it up and almost the first thing is Alcoholics Anonymous by Jim Burwell and there's five different things one of which was before the book was published in April of 1939 they did what was called a multilith copy that's an offset printed thing there was no Xerox copies copiers in 1938 39 so uh so they, they, they did, I don't know, 100, 200, 300, 400 copies, we don't really know, uh, of that book. And, and, and I got Jimmy Burwell's copy. It was at auction. And it says on the title page here, it says copy number two. Copy number two, for God's sakes. So I was like all head up about this thing. I looked at this auction catalog and I saw there was a, there was a not, they call this the original manuscript or the multilith copy. There was a, I, I mean, I was flabbergasted. I walked in and I showed it to my wife, the lady, Sarah. I just, I just handed it to her. I said, look at the first page. And she looked at me and she said, we got to buy this. We got to buy this. So I did. I bought, I bought that collection at auction. Uh, and, uh, and so now here I am. I'm a, I'm a rare, rare book guy, right? The question is, how rare is this book? I mean, if there was 100 copies printed, and this is one of them, it's worth, you know, X. But if there's 400 copies, and this is one of them, it's, it's a quarter of X. You know, there's, there's, it, it, the, the question was the rarity. So I wanted to find out, I knew that it had cost $165 to print this thing. There's a whole bunch of online, uh, really, really good copies of things that were published in 1939 that says they spent $165 on this printing. But I wanted to find out how many copies. So I, I was trying to get into the archive in New York City because I wanted to go down and look and see if there was an invoice. If there was an invoice, then it would tell me how many copies were printed. And I would know how rare this book is. And then if I was going to resell it, I would know how much I could charge for it. So that's so I uh, <clears throat> I tried to get into the archive and uh, and it really uh, they, they you've got to you gotta give a formal application and they meet two or three uh, three or four times a year. And the first time they tabled my application, and the second time uh, I, I found out afterwards, it just it got got lost someplace. I thought they had denied me permission to come in because I had heard all these stories about how tight the security was for any people wanting to get into the archives and, and do actual research. That that is not the case, by the way. If you've got a valid good reason for going in that archive and looking at stuff, you can do it. I still go down there and look at stuff all the time. But anyhow, <clears throat> in uh, in uh, 2007, I don't know if you guys know this book, the book that started it all. This is a, a Hazelton book, and it's a, it's a facsimile of one of these multilith copies, one of these original manuscripts that they kept in the in the, in the Hank Parkhurst's office in Newark, New Jersey, and 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 Hank. Hank wrote all, they, they, they sent out these multilists for comments and suggestions on, on, on things they should change before they actually printed the book. And they got a ton of suggestions. And Hank wrote all the suggestions in one single copy. And that book that started it all is a facsimile, full-size facsimile of that particular thing. So Sotheby's auctions this thing off. And uh, I go down there and beautiful thing about rare book auctions is you can go down there and put your hands on the books before the auction. I live close enough to New York City. I'm 50 miles out. It wasn't a problem. My sponsor and I go down and we do that. And we both go down to the auction. 
And uh, this young woman, this was actually the second time within three years it had been auctioned off. And I've been at both of these auctions. And this young woman bought this for, the first time it sold for almost 1.6 million. This time it sold for not quite a million dollars. The last, it's been auctioned off three times. The last time it was auctioned off, it sold for $2.6 million. But anyhow, this was the middle auction. And uh, this young woman, she was bidding for her father and, and uh, mother, and she's raising her paddle. Um, and as soon as she, she, she wins the book for almost a million dollars, she runs out to, to call her dad and tell her that she bought the book. And I run out, my sponsor runs out, and about eight or nine other people run out. And we're, we're standing around talking to this woman and we're all blah, blah, blah. And people are talking about the original manuscript. And, and finally, one of the women says to me, she said, you know, you seem to know a lot about this original manuscript. And I said, well, I own one and I've done all the research I can, but if I could get in the archive, I'd really be able to learn some stuff about this book. And she said to me, well, why can't you get in the archive? So I told her, you know, they had refused my application, which is what I believed at the time. And she said to me, she said, my name is Amy Filiatro, and I'm the archivist at the GSO office. And if you put in an application, I will get you in to do your research. So I sent Amy an application and bang, oh, I got in and I started doing research in September of 2007. And I got in there and I, I never found an invoice, by the way. I still don't know if there's 100, 200, 300, or 400 copies of this thing that were printed. I doubt that there's any more than 50 of them left in existence, though. Um, but anyhow, the problem was when I got in there, I started looking at this stuff in late, well, in early 1939. And, uh, and I was just flabbergasted at the amount of material that was in there and things that I just didn't know about. I've been in AA a long time. I mean, in 2007, what am I? I'm uh, 20 some odd years sober, 26 years sober. And uh, I, there's stuff in there that just doesn't line up with the stories I've been told. Most, you know, all these, what, what, I, what I have come to think of as urban legends and Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, so I, 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 I start doing more research and I'm going back farther and farther and farther. And I end up doing all this research. I touched and, and typed every word. They won't let you copy stuff. Um, step, neither Stepping Stones, Bill Wilson's house in Westchester, about 30 miles north of New York City, nor the GSO archive in New York City lets you copy things. You can't throw it in a copy machine and copy it. So I had to type every, I typed every single word on every piece of paper that they had in New York from 1937, 1938, and the first six months of 1939. It took me months and months and months and months of driving into the city and, uh, and typing until my brain was ready to explode. And then I'd get in the car and drive back to Connecticut. Um, so all of a sudden, all these, all these stories were showing up that just didn't line up with what I had been told. And uh, and I decided I was going to start writing a book about it. Um, now, it turns out that the first chapter of my book, there's 31 chapters in the book, and it's a very big book. Um, the chapters in the first chapter of my book is called Challenging the Creation Myths. And that's because <laughs> that's what the book basically does is you go along all these all these uh, stories that you've been told or that I've been told in AA meetings forever and ever and ever are um, most of them, some of them are really true, but a bunch of them are just close to being true. And some of them are wide of the mark of being true, really, really challenging, challenging stuff. Um, 
And I was a bit shocked. I got a whole bunch of shocks going through this thing because it was like, oh, come on, don't tell me that's not true. Come on, that's gotta be true. I've been telling that story at meetings for decades, for God's sakes. And you're telling me it's not true? No, it's not true. And it's not true because I'm looking at a document or a list of documents from 1938 that say exactly what happened. And it's completely different from what, what I've been told all those years. Um, so when I first did the book, I, I, when I first, the book first came out, I, they set me up with a whole bunch of radio interviews and, and probably the, the most common question I got was, so what was the most surprising thing you learned when you were doing your research? And, and I, I got a little annoyed at that question uh, and then I got prepared for it. But then I also, at one point, I actually made a list. I think I've got 38 things on a list of the big surprises I got as I was, as I was doing research for the book. But in the end, there was three huge, huge, huge um, surprises for me. And the first one was that Bill Wilson was just a terrible, terrible, terrible historian. Bill Wilson was not trying, he wasn't even trying to do history. Bill Wilson was trying to sell the message of recovery to people who were dying of alcoholism. That's what he was doing. And, and it was just, you just, I mean, I could not believe things that Wilson was saying a lot of times because it just didn't line up with, with, with reality, things that I found in documents and with stories that other people told. Uh, probably one of the most shocking things that really, 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 really annoys a lot of people. Uh, early on in the book, in this first chapter, I, I, I talk about challenging creation. That's, now, everybody's read Bill's story about <clears throat> him drinking in November of 1934, and Ebby calls on the phone, and Bill says, oh, yeah, come on over, thinking they're going to drink together. And Ebby comes over, and they sit and tries to give Ebby a drink, and he says, no, I'm not drinking. And Bill's like, what the hell? And, and, and good, that's more for me. And then, and then he says, what's going on? And Eddie says, I got religion. And he starts telling Bill about the Oxford group and what's happened to him. And, and, uh, and it's really the, the seminal moment, one of the great seminal moments in Alcoholics Anonymous history, as Bill tells his story. And, uh, and Eddie leaves and Bill says, gee, I don't know what it is you got, kid, but I could really use some of that. And Bill drinks for Weeks after that, he doesn't get sober until December 12th of 1934, when he enters Towns Hospital for the last time. Well, you know what? <clears throat> Ebby Thatcher, the guy who was there, uh, there's, I got three recordings of the time he told his stories in the early 50s. One of the times Bill Wilson was even in the audience when they recorded these things. And Ebby says, he tells a completely different story. Ebby says, I called up, I'm looking, but one of the things the Oxford group people did was, was once you got good, you had to go, go get somebody else and convince them to become, come into the Oxford group and in Bill's case, stop drinking, but, but, but kind of get religion, you know? So Ebby uh, decides he's, they, they're, they're, they're on him in the Oxford group to find somebody to work on. So he decides he's going to work on Bill Wilson. He calls, doesn't get Bill Wilson. He gets Lois and he talks to Lois and tells her what's going on, obviously. And, uh, they make a date for him to come over for dinner a couple of nights later. And he comes over for dinner. Um, and neither Bill nor Lois is there when he gets there. There's, a, uh, there's a, an old black servant of her father's who's still living in the basement of the Brownstone on Clinton Street in Brooklyn. He opens the door. He knows Ebby lets him in. Bill shows up. He's already been drinking. He's two sheets to the wind at least. 
And um, so they sit down for dinner. And it's Bill and Ebby and Lois. Oh, and the woman who lives in the apartment on the third floor of the brownstone because they rented it out because they got no money and they're just, they're just on the balls of her ass. So she comes down. So the four of them have dinner. I often wonder if, in fact, Lois was trying to set Ebby up with this woman upstairs. I have no idea about that. But Ebby was something of a ladies' man, and I could see Lois doing that. Uh, after dinner, they go up to the second floor where the parlor is, with the fireplace, and they're sitting around. And Lois says to Ebby, according to Ebby, Lois says to Ebby, so Ebby, why don't you tell us what's going on? And Ebby starts telling the story about how he's not drinking, and he's joined the Oxford group, and he's doing this, and he's doing that. Doing and he says he talked for a long, 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 long time, and finally had to leave to catch the last subway. Bill walks him to the subway, puts his arm around him, and says, kid, I don't know what it is you've got, but I could certainly use a piece of that. Now, that's nothing, nothing like the story that Bill Wilson told. I mean, what the hell is going on here? You know, I mean, that's just crazy. Now, one of the things I love about Abby is uh, the fact that he told that story in Bill Wilson's presence. He also said it doesn't really make any difference because the story's the same. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. He also said, you got to remember, Bill's story isn't the same as my story, but you got to remember one of us was sober that night and one of us was drunk. So who's, whose testimony are you going to take here, you know? <clears throat> He did say the point is the same. So, I mean, I just, when I got to that point, I was just so struggling. I mean, I didn't want to question that story. That's such a great story, you know? It's a great story. But Bill Wilson was a great storyteller, as many of us are when we tell our stories, you know? You know, you tell your story when you're six months sober and there's all kinds of, uh, let's say inappropriate things coming out of your mouth about things that you actually did. But you get to 10 years, you know, and you've got much more spiritual and your story gets cleaned up. Well, um, Bill was a great storyteller, but more than that, he was a great salesman. And what Bill was trying to do was convince somebody of one of the basic, basic foundational truths of Alcoholics Anonymous as he understood it. And that is that, that, that the message of recovery can only be effectively transmitted when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic. And that's what, that's what Bill's story is a parable. It's a myth, if you will, to accentuate exactly that fact. The message of Bill's story is the, the message of recovery can be carried best by one alcoholic speaking to another alcoholic. If, if you, he, so he leaves out all the messy details. You, you can't have Lois there. You can't, God forbid, you should have the woman upstairs down there. And, uh, you know, so it's not just this one-on-one -on -one conversation that Bill told. And Wilson told that story hundreds of times. He got so sick and tired of telling that story. He said, every time I got invited to speak someplace, all they wanted to hear was what he called the bedtime story. It was like, he was just, he would just rattle it off. He would just, you can listen to recordings of Bill Wilson telling that story. It's the same thing over and over again. But I gotta tell you, Emmy Thatcher's story sounds drop dead right on the money, true to me. You know, I mean, he's got all these extra, all this colorful detail in here that uh, that I just can't imagine. He just made up and lied, especially publicly, in Bill Wilson's face. You know, so that's just that's just one example of of Wilson uh, Wilson being a myth maker. He was really, really a myth maker. He told stories that were inspiring. He told stories that were encouraging. He was told stories that 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 gave people hope that they could actually change their lives and get sober and and, and be happy again. Um, 
he, he wasn't, he just wasn't trying to be an accurate factual historian. I'm I, when I wrote the book, I was trying to be an actual factual historian. And that's what I shot for. And I think that's what I hit, which is why it just <clears throat> pisses off a whole bunch of people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I got an email from a guy just yesterday. He said, he said there's people in my group that just don't want to hear those stories being challenged. I, well, I understand that. I had a hard time with them as I was stumbling through the little bits and pieces I was collecting in the archives. But uh, it's the way it is, folks. You know, it's one of those things. Uh, if 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 you if you've got a problem with some of the things in my book, and people have had problems with it, I'll tell you about that in a second. Uh, the book has. 416 footnotes, those are informational footnotes. I hate looking in the back of a book for information. So there's 416 informational footnotes. And in the back, there's 1,570 citation endnotes. You wanna know where I got that information or that quote? Just, there it is, you know? And if, if I've misinterpreted things or if I missed a particular document, I would love to know about it. And I have been told about a couple of things I missed. And we're doing a little bits of rewrites in the book to make corrections on that. But uh, I did I did this incredibly deep dive. I mean, I, I was researching and writing and polishing this thing for 11 years. Um, it's, it's not just some sort of quickly thrown together fly by night deal. So Bill's a Bill's not and Bill's not just a, a, a terrible historian because he's, he's polishing things up. He's also a terrible historian for a couple of other reasons. First of all, he uh, uh, he knew he had a big ego problem. Um, he wasn't alone in that in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can identify with that. But um, but he also told really self-deprecating stories about himself. Trying, you know, here's this guy Bill Wilson. Can you imagine if you're in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and this guy walks into your meeting? Can you even? I can't even imagine that. I mean, you know, this is quite frankly, my reaction would be this. This is the man who saved my life. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go kiss this guy's foot. I mean, good God, that, that's Bill Wilson. So people were just blowing smoke at him all the time and, and just, just being really worshipful around him all the time. I have no, no, I, no idea how this man survived that and how he stayed sober, because I, I think that's just, that's really, so Bill was always telling self-deprecating stories. He was always kind of, kind of putting himself down. You know, and, it, and quite frankly, that's really tarnished his reputation because of all those stories he told on himself. But but he, he did a lot of those things. And, and, and what he did when he was doing a lot of those stories was he took credit that belonged to him 100%. And I mean 100%. And he gave it to other people. One of the, one of the instances of that is this whole co-founder thing. You know, co-founder thing. We'll get to that. Um, the other thing he, he left out a whole bunch of stuff that was, uh, that was, um, embarrassing and problematic. Uh, the two big examples of that are they were deeply involved with the Oxford group, first century Christian movement for the early years of their, uh, I mean, the Oxford group is the soil out of which Alcoholics Anonymous grew. It was hugely important, but he did not mention the Oxford group in any way, shape, form or manner that was easily identifiable in the book. He really needed to leave that out. The Oxford group had fallen most, especially by 1939, had fallen into disfavor because Frank Buchman, the 
the founder and leader of, of the Oxford group had said some flattering things or things that were misinterpreted as being flattering of Hitler. So all of a sudden the Oxford group was persona non grata. So Bill left all the Oxford group stuff out. Probably would have left it out without the Hitler problem, but uh, he left that out. The other thing that gets left out all the time, uh, I mean, Bill wrote, uh, you know, AA comes of age. So it's his history of Alcoholics Anonymous kind of thing. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a guy named Hank Parkhurst who was the first guy he got sober in September of 1935 when he came back after getting Dr. Bob and a couple of guys sober in Akron. And Hank Parkhurst was, was and Bill Wilson were joined at the hip. And Hank Parkhurst is, is, is the second most important man in Alcoholics Anonymous early history after Bill Wilson. And so how come nobody knows about Hank Parkhurst? Oh, the guy drank six months after the book came out. He drank and he never got sober again. And he was fighting with Wilson for years and years and years after that. He was persona non grata in Alcoholics Anonymous. So here's the second most important man in Alcoholics Anonymous history. Boom, he's out of the story. That's an embarrassing deal. You don't want to, you don't want to want to tell the whole story of how important this guy was and the huge contribution that he made to Alcoholics Anonymous, not just to the growth of the fellowship, but actually to the writing of the book and getting the book out the door. This guy is this guy, this guy's Long and short is no Hank, no big book. That's the long and short of the story. And he barely gets mentioned, barely gets mentioned in Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age. It's an embarrassing thing, so you gotta leave that out. Not a good historian. And the last but not least, Bill was terrible with dates. I was trying to figure out, <clears throat> you know, when, when they, they were asked by one of the Rockefeller guys to go down to Harper and Brothers in October, first week of October, 1938, to see if Harper's would be interested in publishing the book. And I was trying to, you know, I, I'm looking, Bill Wilson, I mean, Bill says, oh, it, that happened in June, it happened in July, it happened in August, it happened. It's an, I was like, it happened in the first week of October. And I know that because I've got letters that talk about it and don't talk about it. I mean, bookended facts. I know within four days when that meeting was held, but uh, Wilson was just all over the place constantly given wrong dates for that and, and for a whole bunch of other stuff. So Bill Wilson being an unreliable historian for a laundry list of reasons on a lot, all kinds of different occasions, different things came into play and he would just tell stories that weren't historically accurate. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't trying to do, I don't hold that against them. I don't, I'm, good guy. if Bill Wilson hadn't told those parables, if he hadn't told those mythological stories, I'd be a dead man. And we wouldn't be on this call today, in my opinion. You know, I can hardly blame him for that. The guy, the guy was, uh, he did a great job. He did a great job. He's one of my great heroes in life. The second thing was this, uh, the big surprise was this Hank Parker's thing. Just Hank, Hank was just lighting a fire under Bill's butt repeatedly, just over and over and over again. He got, he talked him into, he talked him into writing just two chapters. Uh, Bill, I just need two chapters. We're trying to raise money. And if we had two chapters of this proposed book that we could give to these, these rich people in New York City who we could give money to us, then, uh, then uh, I, I just need two chapters, Bill. So in May, June of 1938, Bill Wilson writes, there is a solution and Bill's story. And, uh, and Hank takes them and he puts them into what they call a very neat promotional package. And uh, they're trying to raise money so that they can have hospitals string of hospitals across the country, paid missionaries, and, and, and a book. They're going to write a book. 
But Bill really wasn't committed to a book in, in mid-June of 1938. He just, he just been trying to shut Hank Parkhurst up. So he wrote these two chapters and did that. He had also been given some money by Charlie Towns to finance him while he was writing at $500, um, which Charlie wrote a check on May 18th to, to them to do that. Three months goes by, Bill, three and a half months. Bill doesn't write anything, doesn't write anything again. And Hank comes up with a, a new scam to get money because they are just, they are just, you know, you're going to get foreclosed on mortgages and thrown out of the office. And for, so, so he comes up with this scam that they're going to write an article in a, in a, in a Sunday supplement. You know, one of those slick magazines that goes in the Sunday newspaper that comes to your house. There's a Sunday supplement in 1938 called This Week magazine. And it goes in 5 million Sunday newspapers across the country. And they're going to write an, write an article. And he's got a guy who's got a hook up there. One of Silas Bent, one of, the, one, of the, one of the guys who's slipping and sliding, but staying sober enough to go make a pitch to This Week magazine, the editor he knows there, going to write an article. And in the article, Hank wants him to say, listen, if you'll send us a dollar, we'll send you some chapters for the book before it comes out that we're writing. So he goes to Bill and he says, look, Bill, I want to ask him for a dollar. It's easy for him to mail the dollar. And, uh, but the problem is they're going to want more than two chapters. I, I, Bill, I got to have at least five chapters. I need at least five chapters for this thing to work. So September 15th, 1938, Bill Wilson starts writing again because Frank, Ar Frank Parker is just, just pounding him over the head that he needs more book. He needs more chapters. But once Wilson commits in mid-September, he goes on and he writes the rest of the book. And the book is finished by December 31st. So within three and a half months, it's a done deal. A done deal. Our book was written within, within like three or four weeks in May, June, and then three and a half months um, at the end of 1938. And uh, the other great Hank Parker story is that... Uh, <clears throat> So they circulated this, this multilith copy for suggestions, and they got a ton of suggestions. And one of the one of the hugest suggestions came from a psychiatrist, a New Jersey psychiatrist named Dr. Howard. And Dr. Howard said, listen, that text you wrote is very directive. You're always poking a finger at alcoholics saying, you have to do this, and you have to do that, and you have to do that. He said, listen, alcoholics don't deal well with people telling them what to do. You need to rewrite that text completely so it says, this is what we did. And when we did this, this worked out for us. And you know what really worked for us? So he wanted to turn it into a suggestive text as opposed to a directive text, which Wilson had already written. And Wilson refused to make the changes. He wasn't going to change that. He was like, I'm screwed. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. There's a couple of guys report on Wilson just almost exploding, thinking he was going to have to do that. And who the hell was this psychiatrist? What the hell did he know about alcoholism? Parker, 17 days, 17. I find this, I found this late in my, in my research. I found a memo that he wrote to Bill Wilson 17 days before the book was actually published. And he said, Bill, we got to make those changes that Dr. Howard's calling for. I mean, we got to make them. And you know what? If you don't make them, if you don't make them, I'm putting together a committee of six guys. Here's the name of the six guys. Maybe a couple of other guys I'll get. We're going to make the changes if you don't make the changes. Big power play. Big power play by Hank Parkhurst. 
Bill Wilson caved and he made the changes. God forbid somebody else should be messing with his baby. So he made the changes. Um, Bill Wilson wrote that book, wrote that book, except for the chapter two employers, which Hank Parkhurst wrote. Anyhow, Parkhurst is so central to this story. It's just unbelievable. And he's completely forgotten. I, I mean, I'm shocked to the point where Hank Parkhurst doesn't even have a, he doesn't even have a, a, a Wikipedia page for God's sakes. I mean, Christ, everybody in the world seems to have a Wikipedia page. Hank Parkhurst doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Give me a break. That's how forgotten this guy is. The third big surprise was how little the people in Ohio had to do with the writing of the first 164 pages of the book. You know how much, you know how much they had to do with the first 164 pages of the book? Zero. Let me say that again. Zero. The letters are there. Bill Wilson keeps, he sends and he sending stuff to Bob. He's sending stuff to Bob. But the people out in Ohio, don't, they don't want to really have anything to do with the book. They don't even want to write stories. Bob can't get them to write stories. A couple of guys write stories. The guy's closest to Bob, but they can, you can't get people to write stories. They don't want to have anything to do with the book. And uh, and, and Bill, sends, Bill send, sends out five chapters, three of which are brand new and two of which are, Bob's already seen, but he's polished up a bit. And a few days later, he's writing Bob Smith and he's saying, Bob, I mean, I'm glad you like what I sent you, but I'm looking for some input here, man. I need some input. And he just, the, the let, there's letters back and forth between Bob and Bill and, and Bob's giving them nothing, just nothing. Later, Wilson said in, uh, in, a, in a recording he made in 1954 that, uh, that they were, you know, they, 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 what, what he got out of Akron was the warmest support. And he wrote that same thing in Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, you know, when he talks about, talks about that interaction that was going back and forth. Basically, they said, that's good, Bill. We like that. That was all he got out of Dr. Bob. And uh, I'm, I'm flabbergasted with that. You know, that just, that just doesn't, I mean, I've, I've heard the stories about, you know, they, 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 they fought over every page, every paragraph, every sentence, sometimes every word, you know, there was blood in the blood on the floor, you know, both in Akron and in New York. Uh, that was not, the, that is not what happened. A hundred people did not write this book. A hundred people did not weigh in on this book. Uh, Bill Wilson wrote the book and the two people that were arguing with him wasn't happening at the Tuesday night meeting in Brooklyn. Yeah, remember there was only two meetings in the world at this time tuesday night in brooklyn and wednesday in akron that was it when you get sober you had to be at one of those two meetings um but it wasn't happening at the uh at the brooklyn meeting either i got a great recording from a guy who was actually there in november and december of 1939 or 38 um, talking about wilson coming out and reading stuff and people saying well you know you should put a comma there and maybe put a question mark here and the big arguments happened over in Hank Parker's office uh, in Newark, New Jersey, where Ruth Hawk was the woman who was doing the typing for this whole project, Hank's secretary. And uh, Hank and uh, Fitz Mayo, the first and second guy to get sober in New York City after Bill got back from Ohio, uh, Hank, was a, Hank was pretty much of a, of a, people say he's an atheist or an agnostic. I don't think so. He was more of a deist. He, he believed in in some sort of higher power, some sort of universal power, but not, not the kind of God you could pray to and get help from. He did not believe in a providential God. Um, 
So he wanted a lot less religion in the book. And, and Fitz was a, uh, a reclaimed Episcopalian stalwart. So he wanted a lot of Jesus in the book. And they used to fight about it over in the, over in the office. There was, there was blood on the floor in the office in Newark, New Jersey, I'll, on our dealers, I'll guarantee you that. Um, and Hank, fortunately, beat Bill Wilson over the head enough that a whole bunch of the gods were taken out and higher power was put in. And as we understand them, was actually put right into the text. Those kind of concessions came about because of Bill Wilson, because of Hank Parker's. Had nothing to do with stuff coming out of Ohio. So I get I get a little, little jacked up about the, you know, I, I mentioned the, that, that Bill spreads, he gives other people credit for things he deserves. Bill Wilson is the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't, if there's a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't think there is, but if there's a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's Hank Parker's. And the story, I, I read the book, and if you disagree with me, I'd be okay with it. You know, write me an write me an email. I get lots of emails about the book. Um, you know, so so Bill Bill so you know so Dr. Bob's a co-founder. Well, how come Abby's not a co-founder? Oh, Abby drank. How come Hank's not a co-founder? Oh, Hank drank. Bad, bad. That's bad. That's not. You're not going to be selling a program of recovery if if two of the big champions of the program of recovery are are still drinking. So that's not good. Oh, Bob is the last man standing. And he's got all these people out in Ohio who think he walks on water and that Bill Wilson is some sort of snake oil salesman from New York City. That's still his reputation in Akron and Cleveland. If you don't believe it, just go out there, talk to a couple of people. Um, so Bob's a co-founder. Oh, Sam Shoemaker, who's the head of the American Oxford Group in New York City, is a co-founder. William James is a co-founder. Ann Smith is a co-founder. Sister Ignatia is a co-founder. You know, Bill's, Bill's spreading it all over the place all the time. Uh, Bill Wilson was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I heard a, a Mel, Mel Barger, great, great AA historian, died a few years ago. Um, he wrote uh, Pass It On. And uh, Mel said when he came in in Indiana, in uh, in the early 50s that they said Bill Wilson was the founder and Dr. Bob was the co-founder. And I could I could get my arm twisted to go along with that much. But uh, anyhow, that's that that's just that's just me. I get all jacked up on this stuff sometimes. And uh, I got invited. <clears throat> Jackie, Jackie invited me to talk at a San a year ago at the San Francisco Founders Day thing on Zoom. And uh, so we, I was like, why are we doing June 10th? First of all, June 10th, it isn't June 10th. It's almost certainly June 17th that Bob had his last drink. And, uh, and you know, why, why, isn't it, why isn't it when Bill Wilson got sober? Why, how, why do we need two guys sober? I mean, weren't there two guys sober when Bill got sober? It was him and Ebby. You know, there was two of them there. And uh, it just kills me. Kills me. Anyhow, I, I really think Bill Wilson has been shortchanged by a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a lot of, a lot of stories about Bill Wilson and his slimy behaviors and his money and stuff with women, none of which I believe. Um, although he did have a mistress, Ruth Helen Wynn, I got that. That's no doubt about that. If you haven't seen the documentary movie Bill W., uh, I, would, I would highly, highly recommend it to you. It came out in 2012. 
And then there was a director's cut in 2016, which won, a, won an Emmy on the West Coast uh, here. Bill W. Documentary. And uh, that was done by my friend Kevin Hanlon and his, uh, his friend Dan Carasino. I would uh, highly recommend that to you. So I don't know. I, uh, Bobby, I think that, that that covers the things that I want to talk about or, or kind of punch up my book. Oh, by the way, if you want to know, you, if you go to www.writingthebigbook.com, writingthebigbook.com, there's a, there's a little video in case you haven't seen enough of me in the last 50 minutes. And, uh, and there's, there's, there's a sample chapter, chapter eight, which is a really good hot chapter. And uh, there's uh, seven reviews by AA historians, including Ernie Kurtz's uh, widow, Linda. Ernie's dead now, unfortunately. He was a great mentor to me. And, uh, and you can also go to the, uh, you, can, you can click on Amazon and buy the book right there, writingthebigbook.com. Or you can uh, click on contact and you can send me an email. And uh, I typically get a couple of emails from people after I do a presentation like that. And I always appreciate it. I got one this morning, some guy drilling me about what I thought went on in October of 1937 in Ohio, you know, and I spent half an hour crafting a uh, an answer to that, hopefully not further inflaming the people in Ohio. But sometimes I think the people in Ohio need to be aflamed. So there I am. So I'm done. Thank you. That's great, uh, uh, Bill. Fascinating book. Um, you know, I never read AA Comes of Age or Past All or like that. Um, probably not that uh, generation. Um, I did read the Orange Papers, and even from the anti-AA standpoint that I was coming from, um, your book really helped dispel a lot of myths, particularly about the ideas that I had of Bill Wilson being a snake oil salesman and all that and his grandiosity and you know, how that influenced everything. And uh, really when I heard that he was trying so hard to minimize that, and, you know, it, it was really helpful for me. Um, so I'd like to, to thank you for that. Um, you know, I was listening to the book, um, the, the real trial and error of, of how it was, you know, yeah. like it was amazing. Um, all the traditions that we have now, how they came about and how they, how they've been broken, uh, you know, and then built upon or whatever. And I suppose, um, you know, ask it is about, you know, the funding and who was involved in then discussions uh, with the Rockefellers and what was it that stopped it or, or, or so on. Bobby, Bobby, just one thing that I really seems clear to me, you know, the stories that Bill Wilson told are the spiritually tinged stories, that, you know, which, which prompts a lot of people to think that Jesus came down and whispered in Bill's ear when he was writing. And believe me, that's a miraculous story. The story Bill tells is a miraculous story about how the book got written and how AA survived what he called the flying blind period from the day he got sober until the book was published. But I got to tell you, in my opinion, the story told, the human story told in my book, is way more miraculous. This We could have gone off the rails so many different times that we don't go off the rails. It's just by chance and, and, and luck that uh, it, I think it's a far more miraculous story than the what I think of as the BS stories that have been told about the, the spiritual uh, uh, woo-woo stuff about AA. So 
Yeah, and he he really did put a lot on the line. Like he put a lot of sacrifice into it, and it, it was nearly kind of detrimental to to him and his and his and Lois, wasn't it? Um, okay, so um, quick announcement I've got to mention. Next week there's a meeting here. We have a person from Toronto. Um, she's bringing her poem and she's going to relate it to uh, to her recovery. So that'd be very interesting. And now I'll go to the audience. And I think um, Mike G, you're up next. Mike G, alcoholic from Atlanta. Uh, Bill, I appreciate uh, you uh, taking the time to do this. And thanks, Bobby, for uh, for hosting. Um, when the book came out, I um, I got the audio version. Well, I got the I got the audio and the physical version because of the commute here in Atlanta. It's pretty fucked up, so it was awesome, and um, I love it. The audio it's a bit weird though because of the parts where they're talking about the the parts that aren't there and were there and, and aren't there, and all. it it doesn't translate so well. But um, I appreciate you know personally the the service that you've done not just for AA but I think for for free thinkers. Um, in AA as well. And so I didn't know from the book whether you were an alcoholic or not. And of course, you know, found out since. And also that you're, uh, you know, not of the uh, religious sort. So my question for you, which doesn't really have to do with the book, is about um, now that the Zoomiverse has been here for a while, there's a lot of secular meetings and stuff like that. Things have changed, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts on where we're going now you know, secular AA, free thinkers, whatever you want to call it, being more accepted. I mean, there's still a lot of Kool-Aid drinkers. There's still a lot of resistance, as you know. And um, just your thoughts in general about where we're heading and, and what what what's what what else can we do? You know, I mean, I, I like to go to traditional meetings as well as secular so that I can, you know, preach the anti-gospel, so to speak, or just let other folks know there's other alternatives and it pisses people off. Eh, you know, not my thing, but I try and do it very gently. And, um, you know, a lot of people, like many of us here know, they come up to us and they go in the chat and say, hey, can we talk later, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure you may experience a similar kind of a thing. Just looking at your thoughts on that. Uh, thanks, Mike. Um, I appreciate the solicitation of my thoughts on that. Um, I, I, think we're, I think we're finally moving in the right direction here. You know, I... I, I you know, I presume everybody's seen that new path went to God word, you know, finally, finally, I mean, there's like six or eight stories by atheists and it's, it's not, it's not tempered by believer stories. They're just all atheist stories and most of them been sober 20 plus years. Um, they're the general service conference, which meets every year in New York city, 135 people come together and they, they basically run out that's you know if, you, if you're in the service it, it stuff stuff goes from the bottom up and it, it ends up with these 135 people in new york city once a year for the general service conference and this year they decided a couple of things that encourage me they're, they're they they're going to consider dropping the our father for the close of the big meeting in vancouver okay just the fact that that actually got approved as something that they were going to talk about and think about was just, man, that wouldn't have happened five years ago. They also, uh, the literature committee has also approved uh, a, uh, a plain language version of the big book. And the, and the, the, the wording of it, I was, I was arguing with somebody else. It didn't seem to me the wording 
would allow them to kind of rewrite things like two wives and get rid of the misogyny and then the paternalism. They were just going to get plain language in it. And I, this guy said, no, 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 they're, they're, they're going to be rewriting this thing. They're looking for a proposal or a draft at next year's general service conference on what that might look like and feel like. So in answer to your question, I think we're moving in there. I think, I think AA, the, I, I've been going to meetings around here. There's, there's no free thinker meetings in my area. That's okay. The meetings I go to are basically free thinkers anyhow. At least half the people in the room are not believers, you know, so who cares? And, and we don't really beat that one way or the other. The God people don't beat it and the non-God people don't beat it. But uh, it's about time that AA formally opened up. You know, uh, the people, uh, the Toronto people were trying to get a, a the, the God word kind of atheist pamphlets since the late 70s, I think, you know, and they couldn't get they couldn't get anything through the General Service Conference. And then finally, the, you know, guys in England published the thing and, and AA didn't self-destruct in England after five or 10 years. So they the guys in America said, oh, well, I guess we could do one of those pamphlets. And they did one. So more power to them. I think I think things are getting better. Great. Thanks, Mark. Um, Brendan, you're up next. Thanks a million, Bobby, and uh, thanks to Tosnewa. And uh, Bill, it's been a real privilege uh, listening to you this evening. I've heard you once before, and uh, my stepdaughter has ordered the book for me, so I will get to read it. Uh, if not in the summer, then in the in the autumn. But um, I've read lots of reviews, and I'm really excited about reading it. And congratulations, what a huge body of work. Um, I was thinking about you today, and I was thinking, is Bill a member of the fellowship? <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to you that you shared that with us this evening as well. Um, so the, the, the question I have, which um, it's, a, it's a very general one, you may or may not be able to answer. Given that you had access to the archives, um, one of the things that I've never been able to, to work out one way or the other, and you might be able to help us, is where, where in actual fact do, do you feel Bill was in terms of his own belief? Was he a believer in 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 the in the Jew, Judeo Christian God, or was he very much um, more of a you know you mentioned about one of the the other guys I think it was Ebby being a deist? Do you, do you know for sure? Did he ever actually tie a flag to the mask and say this is where I am, this is this is what I believe in? Because I've I've never really been able to 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 know where his own belief in a in in a higher power was. Don't know if you could answer that. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to take that on, Brendan. Yeah, it's uh, it is a fascinating question. But first of all, there's letters. There's a bunch of letters that uh, where there's letters from uh, the mid '40s where Bill talks about believing in Christ. He literally says that. And 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 in earlier letters from 1938, for instance, when when there's a guy in Massachusetts who writes, I'm from Springfield, Mass who had gotten sober and gone up there and couldn't get a meeting started. And, and they're, they're obviously talking about, the guy had obviously talked a lot about Jesus in his letter to Bill, and Bill is referencing that in his letter back, you know? Um, so he was, he was a Christian. I, I no doubt in my mind, Bill Wilson was a Christian. Um, he wasn't a denominational Christian. He didn't really uh, belong to any denomination. But, you know, People get so crazed about, uh, because, because in our book, and we say, as we understand them, so, so obviously, so you can go with group of drunks in the great outdoors and good orderly direction and all of those other options for the G.O.D. thing, who wasn't in by any of that stuff. If you read, 
it, it took me a while to realize that the only way, the only way we agnostics make sense is with two basic presumptions, which I mentioned in the book, two basic presumptions that are just, they're just taken for granted. And they were taken for granted in 1938 by all the people who were, who were in AA at the time. There's the two basic presumptions. Bill Wilson's basic presumption, and I don't think he lost this through his entire life, is that spirituality, you need, you need a spiritual awakening to get between you and the first drink because you've got no power, you've got no defense against the first drink. The spiritual awakening is only gotten through God. Spirituality equals God, God equals spirituality. Premise number one of Bill Wilson's foundational beliefs, in my opinion, that's what it says in the book, it says in that chapter. Premise number two, unspoken like the first one. Premise number two is, oh, you can have any God you want, any God of your understanding that you want, but, oh, 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 sorry, it's gotta be a providential God. It's gotta be a God, an Abrahamic God. It's gotta be a God you can pray to and get help from. The entire book is premised on the idea that there is in fact a God that you can pray to and get help from. And so all this stuff about G-O-D, group of drugs, you know, that's all late, late, you know, 20th century, early 21st. I mean, we just, we just get carried away about, oh, you know, you can believe whatever you want. You can believe in the Fifth Avenue bus. You're higher power to be the doorknob. It's like bullshit. Bill Wilson believed that spiritual equals God and God equals spiritual, and you got to have spiritual, otherwise you're not going to get sober. Oh, and by the way, when I talk about God, I'm talking about an Abrahamic providential God you can pray to for the help you are going to need to stay sober. And I think that stuff is just absolutely drop dead clear in our literature. And I've certainly seen it over and over again in his, in his writings. You know, he's famously in Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, he talks about giving the 12 steps to a Buddhist priest and him looking at him and say, you know, uh, we don't really believe in God the way you do, but if you change God to good here in the third step, we're okay with that. And Bill says, well, that's cool. And then in, in the next paragraph, he says, you know, we got to get over the fact that, that the that the steps have to be so rigid. You know, I'm okay with this guy doing this good thing. And But then he says, whenever people do that, he said, you know, if they come around, they stay around long enough, they're going to start believing in God. They are going to start believing. I mean, he just always believed that if you just came around long enough, you were going to get it the way he got it. I've been coming around for 39 years and I haven't gotten it yet, Bill. So uh, you missed the boat on that one, dude. Okay. Thanks a million, Bill. Th thanks for that. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I might be wrong in this, but when I think about it now, having been reading it for so many years and looking at it, I al always felt now that when he says we agnostics, it's as if he was addressing we agnostics in the past tense, that there was a need to come round to exactly what you've said. So that makes that makes perfect sense. It, it, that that wraps that up lovely for me. So thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to reading your book. And, and again, thank you so much for this evening. It's been a privilege listening to you. Thanks again, Bobby. And thanks to Tosnu. I'm it's all listening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Uh, just a quick thing. Mark was also involved in organising that. He's going to contact Bill. So kudos to Mark as as always as well. Kenji, um, you're up next. Hi there. Um, thanks, Bill. This has been another great talk. I was at that San Francisco talk at that Founders Day, and that was the first time I heard from you, and you just blew my mind oh. in that talk where you talked about Park, about Hank Parkhurst. And by the way, thanks for giving um, lip service to my to one of my higher powers, Knob. 
um, knob works pretty well as a higher power. It opens doors. Um, um, and, um, and I like appropriating, you know, the kind of condescending thing of, yeah, you can use the doorknob um, as your higher power and kind of turning around into going, that way works pretty, it can work. Um, um, kind of tongue in cheek, higher power, kind of along the line, like similar to the flying spaghetti monster. Anyway, I was, I'm just, I'm just fascinated by all you talk about, about the, the business decisions around writing the, writing the book and the, and the pressure coming from Hank on, um, it's just, I just find that totally fascinating how totally other it is than the kind of myth of it sort of being inspired by God. It's just kind of being, you know, coming down in, in sun rays. Um, and it doesn't invalidate the contents of the book at all, knowing that. Um, I'm, I'm told, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's in secular AA meetings to some degree and in secular AA related social media, you hear a lot of negativity about the book altogether. Like it's obsolete, it's irrelevant, it's BS, it should be thrown out or just ignored. Um, um, and, and even hatred for Bill, like he's oppressing us with religiosity, it's all his fault and damn him, which obviously you feel exactly the opposite and so do I. Um, what do you think about that? And also, I'm, I'm totally curious what some of the more interesting aspects of the um, pitchforks and the torches and pitchforks around your book that you've encountered. Um, thanks, Genji. Um, I think that most any American story can only be validly told by following the money. Follow the money. Now, in AA's case, it's follow the lack of money. But you know they were they were just doing everything they could to to, to raise money so that they could. They, Bill Wilson thought they were going to get a string of hospitals across the country. You got to realize this is this is late 1930s. A and P as a as a supermarket chain is just springing up around the country. I mean, it's a big deal all of a sudden that you're going to have something that's going to be like that. You're, this is a whole different world, a whole different culture. But Bill could see a string of AA hospitals. And quite frankly, if you go back to the Washingtonians, the 1840s and 1850s, the very successful group getting people sober until they blew up, uh, they had hospitals. So there's still a Washingtonian hospital, for instance, in, in Boston. Um, so anyhow, I, I think just follow the money is always a, a good regimen, no matter what you're doing. In, in uh, you know, My wife's always bitching about something going on politically, and I'm always pointing out to her, just follow the money, honey, and you'll see exactly what's going on there. That's the deal, you know? And uh, that's the way. I haven't gotten a lot of uh, a lot of feedback from people who aren't happy with the book uh, directly. I, I get some left-handed feedback, but I haven't gotten um, a lot of uh, direct feedback. I mean, if you look at the Amazon reviews, by the way, if anybody's read this book and you liked it, or even if you didn't like it, I appreciate you putting a review on Amazon. Uh, but anyway, one of the Amazon reviews are like, uh, this guy's obviously very angry and he obviously couldn't stay sober. Or, and another guy was saying, you know, where did this guy get all of his uh, document? There's no documentation. Where you get it? And I was thinking 416 footnotes, 1,570 endnotes. Did you even look at this book, dude? You know, it's just crazy. So 
I, I don't know. I don't know where the dust is going to settle on that. I hear that people are resistant to a lot of the myth busting, if you want to call that. Um, you know, there's some great, great, great stories. You know, I mean, one of the things I talk about is that great story about. So Bill's packing to go out to uh, Akron, Ohio. He's been five months. He hasn't gotten anybody sober in five months. He's been sober five months. He's going out on this business trip. He's bitching and moaning. He's just terrible. And he's all upset and getting depressed and subject to depression. And Lois Wilson says to him, well, Bill, that's not true. You stayed sober. Wow, what a great story. So when I'm, I start writing the chapter on working with others, I think I got to start with that story. Working with others is what keeps you sober. That's a great story. And I go looking for that story. And that story is nowhere to be found. Bill and Lois Wilson never wrote about that story. They never told that story in any talks they ever gave. That's a, and I, so I go out to all my historian people. I go out to the archives. I'm like, where's the story? Nobody can figure out where that story came from. You know what? It's one of those AA urban legends. That's a great story. I've told that story at meetings. I've heard people tell that story at meetings. But you know what? There was a, there's a story where um, when they were doing the Oxford group meetings that uh, Lois was running a little late one night. I think she ran late with Rachel Ramity. And Bill was bitching at her, they're going to be late for the meeting. And Lois threw a shoe at Bill and said, damn your old meeting. Now, Lois told that story. Lois wrote about that story. And Bill told that story. That's nowhere near as good a story as Lois saying to Bill. But that's not true, Bill. You stayed sober. So it's just one of, one, one of, those, one of those stories. I don't know how I get off on that tangent. Sorry about that. Back to your questions. Those of those lectures now, we still have plenty of time for questions. And Neil B is up from Burlington. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I'm Neil. I'm a drunk that don't drink. And uh, Bill, I have to uh, myself. I, I got better than, or I say, it got better, uh, better than three decades sobriety. And I have to admire your dedication, absolute dedication to 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 all of this. Uh, you're a walking encyclopedia on it. It's great, and I love it. Uh, I was going to ask you, uh, how many changes was Bill forced to, to change in the book, such as changing the word uh, rarely, uh, never to rarely? You know, rarely have we seen a person fail who isn't thoroughly fathered our past, that, that kind of thing. But was there a lot of them? And uh, also, uh, did he, did Bill, think it was okay in your opinion or what you about him being um let out that he was stealing from lois's purse and that i i couldn't i couldn't see him wanting that in there or well you know he uh i, I don't know he told as i said he told a lot of self-deprecating stories you know um, yeah I, that, that whole thing about supposedly this is another one of those urban legends Bill Wilson supposedly yeah. said if he had to change one word in the big book, he would change rarely to never. Never, yeah. Right? Yeah. There's, yeah. There's, there's, there was a thing in the in the grapevine that was called the answer box or something like that in the in the, the mid-50s or 60s. Again, it's in my book. And and he was directly asked that question and he said, no, he never thought about making that change. Yeah. Never. But wasn't it him that wanted to? Uh more people down on their knees to do the prayers that were in it? Well, when he first wrote the seventh step, it said humbly on our knees. But, yes. But right. they, made him, they made him take that out. 
You know, yeah. they made him take that out. And Hank Parker's made him take that out. You know, that's that's a, Hank Parker's was a. I mean, Bill was a Type A guy, but Hank was like a triple Type A guy. And, uh, and he just, he just, you know, I'm sure that Wilson just finally said, okay, Jesus Christ, I'm just, I'll, okay, I'll change it, I'll change it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Neil. Bob L., you're up next. You want to unmute yourself? Hey, Bill, uh, I really appreciate, um, you know, you writing the book. I, I love it. Um, and I like the uh, the stories. You know, I, I got a friend, and he says, "Why let the truth stand in the way of a good story?" And uh, yeah, it, it is. You know, and and for those stories to those myths to be smashed, yeah, I was like, "Oh my God, really? Come on, not that. What about this? Oh, so you're going to tell me that?" And and on and on and on. Um, but as far as my question, could you? Um, Talk a little bit about the spiritual experience appendix. Well, sure. Uh, Bill wrote it. Uh, so there were 16 printings of the first edition. First printing came out in 1939. The second printing came out in 1941. And between those two printings, um, they had a whole bunch of people saying, well, well, I can't get sober because I haven't had a white light experience like these guys have. And uh, so Wilson, Wilson wrote the spiritual appendix that was put into the second printing uh, and has shown up in all those printings ever since. Um, Wilson wrote that. There's, I've, seen, I've seen a typed up version of that uh, up at Stepping Stones in Bill Wilson's house in Westchester. They have a fabulous archive and, uh, and where, where he's gone through and made corrections. And I talk about that in my book at the very last chapter when I talk about changes and additions made to the book. So um, Wilson was really trying to open it up, you know, because what he really wanted first was, was, I mean, he did have, we were talking earlier, I mean, the guy was a Christian and he believed in a providential God. And that, that was his whole program was based on that. But you know what? Bill Wilson was more interested in people stopping drinking than anything else. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't mean that people had to sign off on, on the same beliefs that he had. He thought the best chance you had of getting sober was to, was to buy into his providential God thing. But he wasn't holding people's feet to the fire. He was, he was ready to do most anything. So he comes up with this, you know, quote in the spiritual appendix about uh, the educational variety, quoting William James. Nobody's ever found that quote in William James. But it's another Bill Wilson thing. Bill thinks he read it someplace, so he stuck it in there with quotation marks. I am just a huge William James fan, by the way. Just, <clears throat> I just finished reading Principles of Psychology and now I'm working on pragmatism. He's just a great, great, great writer. But anyhow, um, the other interesting thing I think about uh, the spiritual appendix is that, is that when it first came out, it didn't have the, the quote at the end by, uh, you know, what, what the hell's a quote? Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer, thank you very much. I'm getting old and I forget names more than anything else. Herbert Spencer, and that wasn't that wasn't in that that uh, that spiritual appendix in the first in the first 15 printings of the first edition, and then when they went to the second edition, that that quote had been the 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 lead off thing in one of the stories in the back of the book of the first edition, and that story got taken out, so it disappeared from the big book. And a whole bunch of people really liked that. So I think it was the third printing or the fourth printing of the second edition. 
they, they, they wanted to put it back in the book, so they stuck it at the bottom of the spiritual awakening. So there'd been, there'd been, you know, almost 20 printings of the book without it, that it got stuck in, it's been there ever since. And, and again, Herbert Spencer never said that, never said that, but it doesn't make any difference. It's an awesome, it's a killer quote. It really is a killer quote, you know? Contempt prior to investigation. Of course, I've never, never, never done that in my life, but I've read about it. I know what you're talking about. I appreciate it, Bill. Yeah, contempt after investigation, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks, Bob. Uh, Bert from South Carolina. Would you like to unmute? Yeah, that was that was very nice. I'm I'm glad that I can listen to it again. I'd like to share it with my wife. We're both into history big time. Uh, one of my questions is is not really related to the book. It's related to your research and and whatnot because that fascinates the hell out of me. And I wonder how much of it you can do online. You said you had to go to dictionary libraries. You couldn't copy things. I've heard that before. I am and have been working on a book for three years on the prison systems in the South which is a very fascinating and disgusting history and the stuff they did to prisoners, the tests they did on prisoners, the mental stuff, all of it is it's so many directions. I'm really kind of lost in a pile of crap, but, um, I, I would, I would give, I'd probably give 50 bucks to pick your brain, <laughs> see if I could get a little help to figure out how to turn this into at least just one pile of shit. Uh Bert, uh, go online to my website, writingthebigbook.com. Send me a note email, and I'd, I'd be happy to talk to you someday. And that, that, that's a that's a phone conversation, you know. But but we'll, yeah, we we can set it up with, uh, with send me an email. I'm an email guy, so if you send me an email, we'll get it done. Happy to do oh, that. All right. One uh, start. You got a website? Yeah. Writing writingthebigbook.com. Gotcha. Thank you. You're welcome. Mute me, Bobby. <laughs> Mute me, Bobby. Writing the big book. Thanks, Bert. Um, up next is Penny. Um, would you like to unmute yourself? Yeah, I'm Penny, and I'm from Reston, Virginia. And I'm absolutely curious. I was absolutely curious about who. HGP was, and it has to be Hank Parker. Do you know, or uh, Henry do you Giffen know what, Parker. what his middle name was? Giffen, G I F F E N. Henry oh. Giffen Parker. Thank you. <laughs> Is he the one who would circle the word God and say too limiting? Yeah, he was, he was always poking at Bill, trying to get him to dial it back. You know, I mean, right off the bat, when when, when Bill was writing the, There is a Solution in the beginning of June, Hank, Hank hand writes out 11 pages of what Bill called Hank's ideas. And he's, and one of the things, he's got three pages of the 11 pages is about like, we've got to get rid of this religion stuff. I mean, that's just not working, man. We, he literally says, we are, we are irreligious. We are not religious, we are irreligious. But what Hank was asking for, you know, in the, in the doctor's opinion, uh, Super talks about um, moral psychology with no explanation whatsoever. Now, Silkworth wrote an article in 1937 
that was published in a medical journal where he talks about what moral psychology is and how it helps alcoholics stay sober. And Hank had borrowed that moral psychology thing right from Dr. Silkworth that he wanted Bill to write a book. They, they always say Hank wanted a psychological book and, they, and people think they're talking about Freud or Jung, but he's not, he's talking about moral psychology, which was Dr. Silkworth's idea of how people got sober and stayed sober. So moral psychology meant, it really meant, you know, selfishness, self-centeredness that we think is the root of our problem. That's what it was like, moral psychology is get your head out of your ass and pay attention to other people. That's what moral psychology is. And that's what, that's the kind of book Hank Parker's won. He wanted a fellowship book. He wanted to, you know, take the blinders off and, 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 and realize that there are other human beings out there that you need to be paying attention to. And if you can do that, I, my personal people, I'm an atheist. That's a, I hate that word. I hate the word atheist. I just tell people I have no supernatural powers in my life. But when people come on me and I say, well, well you don't believe in God. So what, what do you believe in spirituality? And I always say, listen, I think, I think like everything, everything in the world is on a spectrum. And, and over here, when I have no spirituality, it's all about Bill Shaver. All about Bill Shaver. Everything's about Bill Shaver. And over here, at this far end of the spectrum, is, is just, I'm just a part of. I'm a part of it, not just human humanity, but I'm a part of reality with a capital R. And, and, and my individuation has been diminished to the point where I can actually feel that and be that. Now, during the course of the day, I fluctuate all over the place, but I always, <laughs> always want to be past noon. You know, I always want to be over a little bit on this side over here. And when I get over here, the lady Sarah normally whacks me and points it out to me, or one of my two sponsors do, and I try and go back over there. So I think spirituality has to do with how self-centered I'm or not. And uh, love and service. Yeah, yeah. Moral psychology. Great. Thanks, Penny, uh, for your question. Um, Jeb, you're up next. So. Uh, thanks so much. My name is Jeb, and I'm a grateful recovered addict alcoholic. And I appreciate this time with you, Bill, uh, and your book, which I've owned for a couple months, but I still haven't read it. It's just sort of overwhelming. But I do look for things in there because it has a good index in the back and helps me to find things and answer questions. Uh, you know, I, it, the guy, that, that quote is, that he attributes to Herbert Spencer, I understand is actually from William Paley, an Anglican uh, uh, clergyman. It doesn't really matter where any of these things came from to me, because I think like all uh, spiritual literature, it's, there's a lot of wisdom in that book, however it was communicated. And I was very quick when I came into AA at a couple years sober, I guess that was in 1980, they, um, you know, that there was no way that 100 people had written that book. And so I began to read it as Bill's story of what how he got out from under. And, and, and so I was able to accept the things that would fit for me and, and reject the things that just seemed like his personal worldview uh, uh, and so forth. So, you know, I, I still don't have times reading problems reading that book as as long as I read it it's someone else's story and I have no desire to change that story so what today I'm looking for and I keep telling Joe uh, Joe uh, Joe C that I wish he would write a book called the varieties of recovery experience because that's what 
books like yours and others that bring the truth out are encouraging. And these secular meetings are so incredibly useful in hearing the various things that are working for other people. You know, their experience, strength, and hope. And I was just heard someone talking today about um, being told that if it isn't in the first 164 pages, it isn't AA. But I'm grateful that I my, my second sponsor said the most important part of the book is the personal stories where people talk about themselves and don't be hide behind the we. And that is probably my biggest problem with that book is he used we when he really should say this is what I've done. And how could you say rarely have we a, a person failed? And I would say rarely, I've always wanted to say Never have we seen a person who has fully followed this this simple program, and that's what it is because people didn't have that that map. But I'm grateful the map is there with the process that he's described before he tries to boil it down to twelve steps on fifty nine and sixty. There's some really good stuff in there that I've learned to practice well for. 15,649 days. So I never have to drink again because I find the found the power that he said I could find on page 55, deep within, that unsuspected inner resource that he added in 1941. That's That really works. And I'm hearing more of that kind of talk in, in AA today, secular AA. But because of your book, and I, this is really a gratitude speech I'm giving, that, that you, you, you've, you've poked through a lot of the myths that have been around. And uh, I, I, you know, I just am so grateful for that book. And also, the other one is Bob Kay's book, Key Players in AA History, which is a wonderful thing. And there's also, someone shared with me a website a, a while back where you where I can find the biographies and additional writings by other people who wrote stories in the big book, including the guy who wrote He Who Loses His Life. Okay, last thing, I just found out recently who that guy that I admired so much in the doctor's opinion was, who came back after two years, the doctor hardly recognized him. It was Hank. <laughs> and what did I love about that? Because he, the doctor said that there was a man filled with self-reliance and contentment. If that doesn't talk about tapping into that inner power and strength, I don't know what it talks about. So I guess I didn't have a question, but I just I just keep doing what you're doing for AA, for us, for the suffering and, and recovering alcoholic. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Jeb. Um, would anyone else like to, to any quick questions? If not, uh, we can close it off. Going once, twice. Okay, we're done. Bill, thanks very much. Um, I suppose a big boo and a bus, as we say in Ireland, clap your hands. Um, would you, do you have any last comments? No, no, although, you know, I just, Jed just said, you know, it's not in the 60, first 164 pages of the book, it's not AA, it's like, <clears throat> so show me in the book where it talks about sponsorship, would you show me those pages, please? There's no pages in the book, they don't talk about sponsorship in the book. Anyhow, that's just... <laughs>
But, but people ignore page 164 where he says we confess that we know but a little. <laughs> yeah. That's the most important line in the whole book. <laughs> yeah. Let's face it, the most sober guy in Alcoholics Anonymous, the day that book was published, was four years and four months sober. The most sober guy in AA. I've been to meetings where they won't let people make coffee until they have five years, for Christ's sake. Yeah. It's, it's a click in the cult in a lot of places. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh... As we don't open or close with prayers or anything like that, so we, we like to finish with a limerick or a joke. Mark? <laughs> no, Mark. No, I don't. Bobby, and Mark knows I do this. It's not really a prayer, but I close. You know, in our in our meetings, you know, when people say, okay, we're going we're gonna to say the Our Father, or you can do the silent prayer of your choice. We're going to say the serenity prayer, do the silent prayer of your choice. I always... Uh, do the silent prayer. It's a, it's, it's a Buddhist thing called the evening gatha. Now, it's not a prayer because there's no petitioning the Lord. The Buddhists are right in the Jim Morrison camp. You cannot petition the Lord with prayer. And, uh, <laughs> so I always like to close meetings that I'm, that I'm talking to with the evening gatha. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to do that. Yeah. Evening gatha says, let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us should strive to awaken, awaken. Take heed. Tonight, your days are diminished by one. Do not squander your life. Wonderful. <laughs> Namaste.